Thank you, Joel. Good morning. It's uh, always delightful to know that somebody listens to my sermons. I'm not talking about online. I'm talking about when you're here on Sunday, so it's except for those of you who sleep through. Um, Tom Buck apparently took it to heart last week when we talked about the different Christmas gift ideas and decided that I needed a Christmas gift, so he went online, I guess, online. I'm, unless, you, unless you went to a place and had it specially produced, and you can't see this ball cap. You know, I wear ball caps in Bible Bowl a lot. You can't read what it says from this far away, but let me read you what it says, and uh, what I'm going to tell you proves the adage, right? It says, Pastor. Okay, well, I'm an elder. I'm not. We don't go by those titles. But it says, Warning. Anything you say or do could be used in a sermon. Some of you who've been on the receiving end of that, and when I go around taking pictures at various events, you do this, you know, because you don't want to be fodder for one of my sermon jokes, right? But anyway, so we're still in the Christmas shopping season. I have a few more ideas for you for Christmas gifts uh, just to help you out in case you missed last week's list or still need some more ideas. For men, for example... Tickets to a football or basketball game, that's a smart gift, right? Gift cards, electronics, guys like electronics, right? Um, They're also a good bet. However, handy tip here, ladies, he will not appreciate tickets to a retrospective of 18th century quilts. Don't get tickets for your husband for that. I don't think he'll enjoy that. Or how about these gift ideas? Look at the top right. It says bacon soap, huh? Right? Gotta love it. Anything, is there anything bacon can't do? For a nice stocking stuff, stuffer for the kids, there's the handy gift size box. I know it's kind of hard to see on the screen, but that's a little box of Brussels sprouts. Huh? Who wouldn't love that, right? And then there's the inflatable unicorn horn for your cat. And it says on the box that cats love it. I'm not sure if they could say that, if it's not true, but I have my doubts and that cat doesn't look too happy, does it? (laughs) Speaking of vegetables and cats, a survey showed one in three dog owners will get a present for their pooch. How many of you are willing to raise your hand and admit that you have a dog and you will buy it a Christmas present? Okay. Very brave, Ryan. Okay. Very brave. But only 22% of cat owners plan to get a gift for their cat. I wonder why that is. Let me advise you on what not to get if you're one of those 22%, uh, what not to get as a gift for your cat for Christmas. Do not get cucumbers. Audio. Who knew, huh? (laughs) Who knew that cats were just terrified of cucumbers? Now, if you do want to have fun at Christmas for your cat, just get one and then just lay them around the house and watch your cat do that. So let's see if we can transition from some of these opening goofy thoughts to a statement I want to think through with you this morning. Unlike the cats in this video who just thought they were alone, 
and didn't realize they were in the presence of such a significant threat as a cucumber. You and I are never alone. Think about that. You're never alone. Isn't that something to think about? You might think, well, sure I'm alone. I'm alone in the bathroom, at least most of the time. Now, that depends kind of on your family structure. Of course, you may have small children and only wish you could be alone sitting on the throne, right? We might think we're alone at other times too, but you know what? That's literally never true. To help us think about the reality that we're never alone, I want to open this morning by reading a passage we usually don't think of as part of a Christmas message, but bear with me. I think we'll see the connection clearly as we move along. From Romans 8, verse 31, If God is for us, who can be against us? And then, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This pair of rhetorical questions is a good place for us to start exploring one of the great truths of Scripture. And it's true always, but it's especially meaningful at Christmas time. <clears throat> Matthew 1.23, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This Matthew passage is a very familiar passage of Scripture this time of year, but we really miss something if we stop where we usually do in thinking about this passage. Of course, this passage is about the incarnation. That is Jesus, the Word who became flesh. We looked at that last week, who lived among us, God in human form, God as one of us, God with us. We think of this verse prophetically, and rightly so, because Isaiah spoke this verse hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. Because of that, we understand this verse prophetically, and this is a good thing, because it reveals God's plan, and it shows that God fulfills His plan and His purpose. It's also important for us to consider the theological implications of this idea. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was, in fact, God with us. We looked at that in depth last Sunday, exploring the doctrine that the Word was God. He was placed in a manger when He was born. He walked the earth. He ate. He slept. He was cold on cold mornings like this. He sweated on warm days. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He grieved. He suffered. He laughed. He experienced joy and sorrow. In other words, the maker of the universe, the same one who flung the stars into the heavens, the one who formed the mountains and the seas, the one who created each of us, this very same God was with us in the flesh. He was just as real as the person sitting next to you. People could touch him. If they shook his hand, it was warm. If they rubbed their hands on his face, they felt the stubble of his beard. If they watched him sleep, his chest moved up and down as he breathed. A lot like some of you do when I preach. Sweetly sleeping. I'm glad I can provide a good nap for you. He was a real, living, breathing human being. He was one who bled like we bleed when we get cut. But He was one who bled and died for us. Yet at the same time, He was fully God. He never stopped being God, even when He was God in the flesh. God with us. Otherwise, He wouldn't have been God with us. He would have been the former or future God with us as only a man. Now these are awesome truths. They're hard to wrap our minds around, but they're important for us to think about. 
this Christmas season and always. But if we stop there, I think we miss something really important. When Jesus ascended into heaven, and Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, did that mean God was no longer with us? Jesus walking the earth, think about this too, wasn't the first time God was with us, with people. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, that wasn't the end of God with us. Yes, it's true. Jesus was a unique picture of God with us. Jesus was God in the flesh. And thanks be to God, because of the resurrection, he lives still. But God is with us in other ways beside the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the second person of Trinity, God the Son, come to dwell among us. And in that sense, Jesus was truly unique. But God has always been with his people, and he is with his people still. Now, this is an amazing, awesome, wonderful truth. And when we think about the implications of God being always with us, it can be also a little troubling, or at least challenging. As early as Genesis, we see God with his people. We see him speaking to his people, interacting with them. Well, you might think that didn't mean he was with them. Even we can speak to someone we're not with. If we finite creatures can speak to someone halfway around the world on a telephone or even on a video chat, then clearly God can speak to his people without being literally with them. But as early as Genesis 26, we see God saying that he will be with his people. Genesis 26, 3, stay in this land for a while, God said, and I will be with you and I will bless you. The Old Testament is filled with instances, and we're going to look at several of them, where God tells someone he is with them or he will be with them. We'll look at the unique implications of some of this in a moment. Unless we think that that ended when Jesus ascended into heaven and was no longer the living God who was walking the earth as one of us, consider this passage, these words of Jesus to his followers in John chapter 14. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So twice in this passage, Jesus tells his disciples and us of the new way. It was new to them. It's 2,000 years old to us that God would be with them. It was a unique way. And it was a way that was as real and genuine as God's presence was in the Old Testament. Even the patriarchs of God's chosen people, however, didn't experience this themselves. Even as real as Jesus was to his disciples, so real that they could touch him physically, feel his pulse, see him sweat and breathe, even they didn't have this unique presence of God until after Jesus ascended into heaven. This counselor... And isn't it interesting that 
Jesus uses that word because that's one of the names given prophetically to Jesus. We hear that this time of year as well. Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But this Counselor, though we would no longer be able to feel the stubble of his beard or see him eat, drink, shiver, or sweat, he would be with us in an even more special, more unique way. A wonderful way. He would be in us. He would be in us. That's what Jesus promised his disciples. That's what he promises those who are in Christ. Verse 17 says, He lives with you and will be in you. In verse 20 of this passage from John 14, Jesus tells us, You are in me and I am in you. Startling thing to think about. The key words, in you. It reminds me of the difference between bacon and eggs. You've probably heard this before. There's involvement, and then there's commitment, okay? Chickens are involved in providing us a traditional American breakfast. They provide the eggs, a relatively small sacrifice, at least for the chickens. But pigs are more than involved. They're committed. You don't get to be a slab of sizzling bacon by just being involved. Pigs give their lives to be in you, to be a part of you as bacon or ham or pork chops or good barbecue, right? They're committed. Jesus wasn't just involved in our salvation. He was committed. Jesus gave his life for us. He revealed the love of God in a very real, genuine way. I'll bet that's the first time you ever heard Jesus compared to bacon. His death and resurrection allowed him not only to pay the penalty for our sins, not only to conquer sin and death forever, but to live in his people in a way that's more real than bacon being in you and becoming a part of you. It's the difference between putting on a shirt which can only touch my outside, right, and eating something. Now, my shirt is with me in a very real sense, but it's physically detached from me. The closest it can come to me is to touch the outer layer of my skin. It's with me because it comes along with me wherever I go when I'm wearing it. But it isn't with me as Jesus is through his Holy Spirit, this counselor that he told his disciples about who lives in me. When Jesus came to earth as Emmanuel, as God with us, he didn't come to live next door or down the block or maybe to just to periodically hang out with us. That, that's how it started. Ultimately, he came to live inside of us. Jesus' presence is more like the bacon. The protein of the bacon gets absorbed into me and actually becomes a part of me. So does the fat. It goes with me and it shapes me into who and what I am. Now, of course, in this way of looking at it, maybe bacon's not the best food example. If I meet, eat too much of it, there will likely be too much of me. But you get the idea, right? We could just as easily use a piece of fruit, maybe something healthier to eat, as an example. The idea is that Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, not only came to be one of us, he became one in us. We are privileged to have the Spirit of God reside in us. After all, what does the Apostle Paul tell the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20? Christ lives in me, right? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In me. 
Wow. Isn't that a wonderful way for God to be with us? Emmanuel, God with us. It's about the most intimate way He could choose. Living in us. Still, even before Pentecost, God has always been with His people. I found it interesting as I found dozens of passages that stated this truth in one way or another. That the only times God speaks these words, I'll be with you, is to His people. The only exceptions to that are occasionally He speaks to someone else, follower of God or not, whom He intends to use for His purposes. So it's either to His people or someone that doesn't know Him that He intends to use for His purposes. So God does not say, I will be with you to just anybody. In a larger sense, of course, God is with everyone, right? Even those who do not know or serve Him. That's the doctrinal understanding of God that we call His omnipresence. But in the sense used most often in Scripture, God is with those who follow Him and serve Him. Think about this. The Bible speaks of God's presence in two major ways, in space and in relationships. Theologians use the term omnipresence, derived from Latin, to speak of God's presence everywhere in all the world's space. Moses experienced that presence on a wilderness mountain in Exodus 3. Isaiah in the Jerusalem temple, Isaiah 6. And Paul on an international highway, the road to Damascus in Acts 9. Most often, the Bible speaks in terms of God being present in relationships. He called Israel to be his people in Exodus. He appeared to Elijah in a still small voice in 1 Kings. Most of all, God appeared person to person in the human flesh of his son Jesus. We don't want to underestimate the omnipresence aspect of God being with us. We read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. That's kind of a sobering verse. How can that be? How can we be accountable for our careless words? How can we be accountable for any sinful thought or action? Because God was with us. He was in us when we thought those thoughts or did those actions or committed that sin. The idea that God is with us should be a deterrent from sin. Santa's not the only one who sees you when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake. Nothing escapes his gaze. We read in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The psalmist writes, If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. He's everywhere. He's with us. Now, if we're walking with God and we're serving him and seeking to please him, this is a wonderful and encouraging truth. Because there's nowhere He's not with us. But if we're in sin, or if we had not trusted in Him for our salvation, it's a sobering thought. Because again, there's nowhere we can flee from His presence. Adam and Eve were the first to try to hide from God after they sinned. And Jonah found out he couldn't run from or hide from God, didn't he? The Word is full of special ways that God tells us he is with us. A few moments ago, we looked at the passage from Genesis 26. A few verses later, in verse 24, we read this. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. 
I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Now this is a reality in Scripture, that God will be with us in our future. He sees the end from the beginning, so he knows what's coming. Because he's with us, we can hope in him. If there's anything that seems to cause us anxiety, and yes, even fear or worry, it's the unknown of the future, right? It might be our finances. It might be our job or lack of it. It might be the world we live in, war and disease and terrorism. It might be our families or our children. What's going to happen to them? But God reminded Isaac in this Genesis passage that he is faithful. He is faithful. He told them not to fear the future. Why? Because everything's going to be great? Because I'm always going to heal? Because everything's going to turn out the way you want? No. Because I am with you. A Wayne Watson song, some of you may remember him, he was an 80's Christian singer, includes these lyrics celebrating Emmanuel, I'd rather walk in the dark with Jesus than walk in the light on my own. I'd rather walk in the dark with Jesus than walk in the light on my own. Centuries before Isaiah pro spoke the prophecy about Jesus, our Emmanuel, God was already Emmanuel to his follower Isaac. Related to this is the fact that God is with us when we're afraid. God is with us in fear and in weakness. In Isaiah 41.10 it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now sometimes we have to remember this needs to be done by faith. It needs to be done by faith. That's why we rehearse these passages of Scripture, because we know that this is true. It tells us about God's character, but it doesn't promise us that everything's going to be great. He chooses to uphold us, not necessarily by changing our circumstances, though he may do that, but he upholds us by being with us. We read a few chapters later in Isaiah, do not be afraid, and then we see it again, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. And then we see in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. So sometimes he promises a specific outcome, but he doesn't always, but he always promises to be with us. God's not only with us in fear, but in discouragement. We read in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, David also said to Solomon his son, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord my God is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. God's with us in battle. Now the passages of Scripture that we most often uh, read relate to real physical battles. But I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that God is with us in any kind of battle. We see battle references in Ephesians 6 when, we said, when it says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. There we see in the Lord, right? Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the, this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Does that sound like a battle to you, right? The imagery is all about battle. 
but we can be strong in the Lord because the Lord is in us. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 23, the Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun. Be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised them on oath, and I myself will be with you. We read in Joshua 1.5, No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Joshua 3.7, And so the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. We see that words, those words again, I am with you. I will be with you. We read in Judges chapter 6, verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites together. Some of us are fighting deep spiritual battles. We may be battling against sin, or we may be in a spiritual battle with the enemy over any of a myriad of other kinds of things. But here's the Lord's promise to us. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, says the Lord. This relates to almost any trial or suffering that we can think of. And the word of God is clear that God is with us in the midst of these things. Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And Isaiah 43.2, I'm trying to overwhelm you with all these passages of Scripture that declare these truths. Isaiah 43.2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Some of us are passing through the waters now. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now, I want to again state that the context of these passages were often very specific promises to a very specific group of people or individuals in a specific time and place. But I do believe that we can still have confidence in this recurring theme in Scripture that God is with us, seen in these passages and more. These were God's people. These words of encouragement, each of which includes phrases like, the Lord is with you, or I am with you, or God is with you, were spoken to God's people. There's no reason at all to think that if God was with his people in these challenging situations, he cannot or will not be with us in ours. These passages reveal, if anything, they reveal a lot of things. If they reveal anything, they reveal the character and the faithfulness of God and his deep and loving relationship with his covenant people. What's more, those of us who are in Christ have God not only with us, but in us. It's a more powerful, stronger way of being with us. I think this verse in Matthew, the very words of Jesus, which seems pretty all-encompassing, allows us to claim these other passages for ourselves as an illustration of God's character and His love for us. In Matthew 28:20, Jesus said, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, always pretty much covers the waterfront, doesn't it? covers everything. It's the best promise we could ever have. It's the best promise we could ever have. I am with you always. It's a better promise than something such as, 
I will take this burden, this sickness, this problem, this hurt, this pain from you. It's a better promise. I am with you always is a better promise than anything we can imagine. That doesn't mean we can't pray for relief. We can do that. We should do that. We should do that for ourselves and for each other. But the love of God is such that He is with us even when we disappoint Him. Even when we sin. Even when He is compelled to bring discipline into our lives. We read a passage in Zephaniah that helps us understand this. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you. There we see it again. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now this was written to God's people who were under judgment. But God promised to take away their punishment. In other words, the suffering, the judgment, wasn't going to last forever. Then we see again those marvelous words, the Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Can you imagine how comforting those words must have been? Wow. And then there's the only other place in the Old Testament where the word Emmanuel is actually used. We saw the first one in Isaiah 7, which Matthew then quoted in the New Testament. But in Isaiah 8, just a chapter later, we see the word Emmanuel used again. Reading first from verse 8 of chapter 8, its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then in verse 10, we read, devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now this is a very interesting passage, because it's a passage again like the one we just read previously, it's a passage of judgment. But with our loving God, judgment of His people is always mixed with the hope of redemption. And it's always tempered with His mercy, and more importantly, with His presence. So let me read the entire passage in context. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning with verse 6. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now, time doesn't permit us to completely examine this passage. It might be worth doing in another sermon sometime. But I want to, in the context of what we're thinking about here this morning, point out a couple of things. Assyria was a godless nation. They weren't following God in any way, shape, or form. But here, Assyria, the nation, is pictured as a river of God's judgment toward His chosen people. Now, Isaiah prophesies here that Assyria would cover Judah up to the neck. Okay? Meaning that the people of Judah would be almost, but not quite drowned. Figuratively, we might say they're just barely going to keep their heads above water. But then we see hope 
in the midst of judgment. We see Emmanuel, God with us. It's Isaiah's reminder to the people that God still loves them. That this discipline is only for a season, and because of his love for them, he would be with them, even in the time of discipline. So even though they, the Assyrians, would carefully work out a strategy and a plan for battle, they would not succeed because God was with Judah. That great truth separated Judah from all other nations of the world because God has promised to be with his people. They were to have faith in him no matter how bad their circumstances, he would not desert them. Isn't that a comforting truth? in what we face in our culture, what we face in our personal lives, many of us, in our world today, in light of our culture, which has, for example, totally abandoned any hint of sexual morality and even celebrates sexual immorality. In a world, in a world where at almost any place, at any time, we can be attacked by terrorist extremists who hate us. In all these things, God is with us. Jesus is our Emmanuel. The truth is, if he's with us, he's also for us. This is bringing us back to the opening passage of Scripture. This is no doubt a genuine comfort to those Christians who even today, we have brothers and sisters who are at the moment of their martyrdom. Those Christians, some of whom are about to literally lose their heads for the sake of the gospel. So again, this brings us full circle back to where our opening verses of Scripture connect with the very familiar Matthew passage we usually read at Christmas. Remember what we read at the outset. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? To use a more modern phrasing of 8.31, we might say, if God's on our side, who can compete against us and win? Again, it's a rhetorical question, which if we were to answer it, we would have to say, nobody, nothing, no circumstance can defeat us. If God is for us, he's for us because he's with us. He's Emmanuel. And we must remember, here's the harder part. These are ultimate truths, okay? In other words, they may not be manifest fully this side of eternity. Because we know that believers in Christ around the world, and God is with them, he is with us too, believers in Christ around the world still lose their lives, and we all still suffer. But there is no ultimate defeat for those who are in Christ. Whether our lives on this planet are protected or not, and because he's with us, he's also for us. Because we cannot be separated from the presence of Christ, because God is with us, we cannot be separated from his love. That's the wonder. That's the joy of Emmanuel, God with us. He's not only with us, he's for us. And he's with us in our future, whatever it holds. He's with us when we're afraid. He's with us when we suffer, emotionally or physically. He's with us in any kind of trial or testing. He's with us in battle. He's with us in weakness. He's even with us in his discipline of us, maybe especially then. And this promise to be with us is a better promise than promising to remove these things from our lives. 
Now that's hard for us to grasp when we're in the middle of these things. It's hard for us to accept, but it's true. Again, quoting the song by Wayne Watson, I'd rather walk in the dark with Jesus than walk in the light on my own. I'd rather go through the valley of the shadow of death than dance on the mountain alone. We're never alone. He's always with us. When Jesus became Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh, on that first Christmas morning, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy so perfectly, as unique and important as that was, it was also God's reminder to us, the visible representation to us, that he's always been with us and that he always will be with us. I don't know about you, but I need God to be with me in all the ways that we've looked at this morning. And I'm guessing that I'm not alone either. I'm guessing that there are many of you here this morning. I don't have to guess. Some of you I know. Some of you haven't told me all this stuff. Some of you I know need to know. We need to know. We need to experience. We need to feel. We have to sometimes take it by faith. But we want to feel, we want to experience that God is with you in whatever you are facing. So, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but as we close, if that describes you, you just have this deep need to know that God is with you. You want to experience it. And if you can't, experiencing, if you can't experience it physically, like palpably, you want to have a deepening of your faith to trust that it's true. I want you to either stand or raise your hand, and we're going to pray to close. If this describes you, it describes me, I'm raising my hand too. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these tremendous truths that you are indeed with us. You are with us always, that you never leave us, that you never forsake us. You are with us in all of the things that we experience. You are with us in every way we can imagine, Father God. But sometimes, Father, in the midst of our most challenging trials, we don't have that sense. So, Father, when we don't sense it, when we don't feel it, help us to claim it by faith. Father, we're not into naming and claiming, but we want to claim the truth of Scripture in this case. Father, we want to know because your word declares your character, it declares your love. So help us to know this, Lord. Help us to know it better. Help us to experience it and help us to trust you that you are with us. You are our Emmanuel day by day and moment by moment. We commit these things to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.